The resurgence of militant Islam in recent months and the ongoing secularization of our culture in recent years, none of which can be denied, certainly serve a context and background for these words written so long ago. Because what we believe really does make a difference in what we do sooner or later. And, that, and just talking about the stories of the Bible is not its purpose. It, it has a practical application goal. As we have been looking in 1 John, though, we have found it at times a bit bewildering because it is written, as most of the Bible is, by a non-Westerner, someone who grew up in a different culture and who approaches things somewhat differently. If we were writing 1 John, I suppose we would say, first of all, and now secondly, and third, and in conclusion, because that's the way we were taught, and that's the way we think, in a linear direction in the West, at least until the last few generations. But John doesn't write like that. And so making sense of a rather bewildering set of verses and teachings is, I think, helpful when someone from our perspective, namely John Stott, takes a look at these things and begins to schematize them for us. And I certainly, again, want to give my expression of gratitude to him and his commentary as we go through the book, because I do think he has identified what the Holy Spirit is seeking to do through John and teaching these things to us in a repetitive, circular, circling back type of approach. We have seen in the first chapter, of course, an introduction and, and a focus upon Christ as the center of the church, the reason for the church, the purpose of the church. And we saw that sin has tried to wreck what he did, but it won't be successful because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world as John will soon say. Then we began to hear him describing the somewhat invisible and yet real bonds which hold the church together. This so-called fellowship, this koinonia, which is mentioned several times in the first chapter, now he has begun to describe in the second chapter in particular. And he is mentioning three things that he considers to be indispensable bonds of the church. The first of them is integrity. Integrity with one another, integrity and obedience to the Word of God. And and while no one uh, obeys the Lord perfectly or the law in all its points, the idea is that if the church is going to succeed, it's going to be because God's people are doing the best they can by His grace. They're, They're turning to Him. And they're asking for help. And they're not winking at their own sins, but they're taking it very seriously. Secondly, last week, and as we heard in the special music this morning, the importance of love. Jesus said that by love we would be known, and John is echoing those words beginning uh, last week in verse 7, where he says, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is a message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and, and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who came, claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. And so we saw the subject of love within the church, within the body, last week. We didn't discuss loving our enemies, which is another subject, or loving the world in general, which is another subject. But we looked at loving the church, loving the brethren, loving one another. 
And now thirdly today, after an interlude, which Pastor Kevin will look at next week, we take up his third item, which is in, begins in verse 18. The third bond which holds the church together. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. They, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. This is God's word. Let's bow together. We thank you, Lord, for this word and pray that you might make it plain to us today. And more than that, enable us to keep it, that we would not just have understanding, but also obedience, and that our lives would, would please you thereby, that we might be guarded individually and as a congregation from theological error, and that you might help us to stand true and faithful in a generation in which the gospel is so openly under attack. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The background of this passage, of course, goes back to Genesis and the war between God and Satan. It's an open war, although it's invisible in many of its aspects. He wants to di disrupt and destroy the church if he can. And there are three things which he uses to try to do so. One is a lack of integrity among believers and, and, and trying to sow among us a casual attitude toward obedience. It doesn't really matter what I do or believe because I can do as I please. The devil is the author of such an attitude, and he sows it and advances it everywhere he can. You may see it rising up in your own heart from time to time as he attacks you from within. Also, he wants us to be divided and disruptive in our relationships, and wants us to be not only estranged from God, but estranged from one another. So he is when he, if he sleeps, when he gets up in the morning, he, the first thing on his mind is the disruption of the church and the destruction of the kingdom of God. You are not important to him. You are important to him only because Christ has you and owns you. His enemy is not you. His enemy is the Lord himself. And that's who he's attacking. That's who he wants to destroy. He won't win, the Bible says, but he's not going to quit either until, until sometime in the future. And then thirdly, what he wants to do, is, as clearly as he did in the garden, was to say what God has said is not true. What he told you is wrong, it's off a bit or a lot, and needs to be amended, and you don't have to agree with it. 
John's taking up now the third of these. And let us just pause and say, remember, the other wider context here is the fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They always obey the truth. They always act with perfect integrity within their fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit. They always love each other. There's never a division or a, a divided. There's never, it's never two to one in the councils of eternity. It's always three to zero or zero to three. Nobody, nobody wants to do it. And when it comes to the truth, not a jot or a tittle will pass away. Heaven and earth may pass away, Jesus the Son said, but my word shall never pass away. So these are the three things that John will return to in the future. As he says in verse 7 of chapter 1, if we are going to walk in the light as he is in the light, we must take note of these three things regularly. There is the moral test of obedience mentioned in verses 3 through 7. There is the social test of love for the brothers. And there is the doctrinal test, orthodoxy of, of belief or truth. And we say, too, again, by way of review, that the first two, particularly, are very imperfectly uh, applied. None of us is perfectly obedient, not even close. But the question is, are we trying? Are we interested? Are we seeking the light and not walking in the darkness, excusing sin and explaining it away? The social test also shows us our imperfections. None of us loves perfectly, not even those closest to us, let alone those whom we only casually know within the wider body of Christ. We are imperfect in these. But we are trying. We are doing what we can to serve and to listen and to sacrifice for even those that we don't know well, but who are qualified for that service and sacrifice because they're part of the church. But this orthodoxy thing, I remember some years ago at a presbytery examination, a young minister was coming for an examination, and, and there was some dispute about some of his views. And um, several in the body who knew him and were his advocates said, ah, it's close enough. I think, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's gotten most of the questions right. And one of the older and more experienced gentlemen rose and said, ladies and gentlemen, this is not... Uh, uh, history, biology. This is not an exam in school. If you get a C in theological examination, that means there's a whole lot that's wrong. And that which is wrong can become a real problem. We need him to be 95 to 100 percent correct, not 70 or 80 percent correct. It was a, it was a chilling reminder that theological orthodoxy is, is not like golf where you kind of get close or uh, you know, and, and then kind of put it in eventually. You've got to hit the mark. And, of course, the General Assembly, the Presbytery, is the place where that sort of thing is particularly guarded and concerned about. And uh, to whom I answer, to whom I'm submissive to. So now to his words. I don't want to spend too much time, of course, on this first verse because it speaks of the last hour. And uh, this has raised a lot of questions, but this is just part of a whole cluster of statements here and elsewhere in the Bible that tells us simply this. Nothing else is going to happen in the world of real significance until, the, until Christ returns. Now, the elect will be gathered in, the gospel will go forth, and God's providence will continue over all the acts of history, but 
This is the last hour in the sense that everything else is done. The creation, the fall, the redemption. We're waiting only the final act of consummation. This is the last hour, so that's our wider context. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. He's going to say a lot more about this Antichrist in the book of Revelation. He passes over it rather quickly. But even now, many Antichrists have come. The Antichrist in Revelation, of course, has a more public and distant approach. He's not necessarily from right inside the church. But, he's, but, but John is addressing now the problems that have arisen with his beloved friends inside the church. These Antichrists have come. They are in opposition and therefore, by implication, are supported by Satan himself. The war is going on. It is continuing. They are coming and they will continue to come. And this is one way we know it's the last hour, because the conflict, as the book of Revelation says, continues to rise and continues to grow as we move forward. They went out from us. They were a part of us, but they did not really belong to us. So again, the context here is not so much um, theological error outside the church. Just as in the case of love earlier in the chapter, he wasn't concerned to speak this time about loving our enemies or loving others out in the world. He was talking about love within the church. In this instance, the narrower context is the same. Some disruptions have taken place among the believers, and people who used to be in the center of things, or certainly very active, have now departed. There's been some kind of, of division If they had belonged to us, he says, they would have remained with us. Let me say, too, as a a final word of emphasis there on my first point there, failing any portion of these tests is serious and foundational. And that's the context of what we'll see here in just a moment. The language of John is very strong. If you do not obey the word of God, if you do not take seriously the practice of righteousness, then you are a liar, he says in verse 4. That's a serious allegation. That's, that's much, very, very, very important and, and weighty. If you fail, number two, if you do not love the brethren, then he says in verse 9, you are still in the darkness. And then thirdly, if you fail, number three, you are like in verse 4, a liar. If you do not hold to the truth, if you do not keep theological orthodoxy high on your list of things that are important, then you're a liar. This is also foundational. All three of these need to be present. If you have only the first and the second, then you are a cult. The most prominent of those is the Mormons. A number of cults in the world, but they are one of them. They are certainly people of integrity. And their culture is admired for its uprightness. They take care of each other. They give a lot of attention to social work and support of the Mormon family, so-called, around the world. But because they deny that Jesus is both God and man, they are, technically speaking, a cult. They don't eat strange food, they don't dress funny, they don't wear their hair differently as we normally think of a cult being sort of bizarre and weird. They're very respectable. But because they fail the the third test, they're a cult. If you only have integrity and truth, the first and the third, then you're like the Pharisees. 
You have orthodoxy, but it is lifeless. It has no punch. It has no application because there's no love. So Jesus said, you are whited sepulchers. You are blind guides because you do not love God. You're simply obeying in a rote and exterior way. You are concerned, as he said, about the outside of the cup and not the inside. But if we should have love and truth only, the first and the third, we have what we call antinomianism or a a, a lawlessness of activity that leads to chaos. Or we love each other and we say we hold to the truth, but if we don't obey God's word and we fail the first test, then we're in serious and fundamental trouble. Now, why are truth and theological orthodoxy so important? Is there such a thing as heresy? Many will tell you no. But the Bible says differently. Why can't we just, you've heard this, you've thought this, why can't we all just believe what we want to believe and leave everyone else alone? Because of passages like this. Heresy, first of all, disrupts the church sooner or later. These antichrists were there for a while. They were teaching what they were teaching. And for a while, their views competed with the apostles, with the orthodoxy that was handed down to them from Jesus. But they were not sincere in their faith. And they were interested more in disrupting, so they re- did not remain. They would, if they were, they would have remained, but their going out showed that none of them actually belonged to us. But you, he says, have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have, know the truth. This is a characteristic of the fellowship of the church, that the truth, the scriptures, are paramount and significant, not just in lip service, but in actual application to life. Very few would say, I don't believe the Bible. But we don't always apply it, do we? At least I don't, as I should. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth. It's not as if you are ignorant of it. I'm not having to teach it to you. But because you do know it, and because no lie comes from it. You need to understand that this disruption that's come among you recently is is very serious, and it's because the third bond of the church has been severed or has been strained. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now, when most of us hear the word heresy, we think theological seminary. I haven't been to seminary, and so I may not be able to know the importance of or the distinctions of or the details of of heresy. So he makes it very simple for us. Very simple. Verse 22. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. No arguments here raised about the second coming and when or how. No discussion here about the meaning and mode of baptism or the Lord's Supper and some of the other things that we differ over and debate inside the church. Nothing here about the details of theology. It is very simple and stark. Heresy starts and ends with this one thing. Is Jesus the man also the Messiah? Some would say he was a great man. Admirable. Listen to him. But not divine. 
Others would say he was the son of God who came and was himself divine, but did not really die because God cannot die. He was only in appearance as a man. We have a name for that. Those were the Doketics. They believed that he only seemed to be a man. Well, John makes it simple. What makes the Mormons a cult is their view of the person and work of Christ. They don't believe he had two natures in one person. It's as simple as that. We're not now down into minutiae and difference and, and minor differences. We're at the very heart of the, of the faith. And evidently there among the friends, among the fellowship to whom he is writing, there were those who were denying that Jesus is the Christ. For such a man, verse 22, is the Antichrist. He is, denies the Father and the Son. Now he broadens it a little bit and says, not just the focus here just upon the the Son and His dual nature and His being the Messiah, but also His relationship to the Father. He was, in other words, addressing the question, He was not divine. He was just a great man. He was a God-like man. He was a godly man, but He was not divine in the sense of being one of substance and glory and power with the Father and the Spirit. But John says no. He denies the Father and the Son. No one, unless lest we miss it, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Jesus said clearly, chapter 10, Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. And in every opportunity, he continued to identify himself with the Father. Distinct in that they are different persons of the Trinity, but one in substance and always in agreement and love and and ministry together. So heresy disrupts the church. And heresy strikes at the vitals of our religion. Jesus predicted that this would be true. He said, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now, he said this to the disciples to warn them about an interior threat. And Paul at the, at the Ephesians says, Even from your own number, some will rise and distort the truth. So outside the church, there are many who deny. We would expect that. And there are many opponents to the gospel around the world in various religions and philosophies and uh, agnosticisms. But inside the church is a threat too. And since I am discussing what holds the fellowship together, I want you to be alert to the fact that there is a serious and fundamental threat to the, to the ongoing koinonia of the congregation to the subject of theological orthodoxy, truth. It is very important. It seems like in the wider world that It doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe it. Leave me alone. Maybe that's the way it was then too. But inside the church, then and now, there must be concern and attention to these things. What is the truth and what does it mean? So he concludes. Verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. Here is an assignment that will be on the next test. Make sure 
that you hang on to the truth. Very important. He's not saying it's more important than loving or obedience, but he's saying it's as important. See that what you have heard, see that the truth that was handed down to you remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Father and in the Son. There's a, there's a real vital and organic connection here. Not just dead orthodox belief, but vital connection. When we trust in Christ, though we can't see him or don't know these things to be true in an actual hands-on situation, we please him. And our relationship with him is strengthened. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. It will be to our advantage and strength. And I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray inside the church. I'm not so sure that it's happening inside this congregation. Maybe so. I'm not aware of it if it is. But it's certainly happening within the larger denomination of the PCA, which is only three or 400,000 people, really. And it has been one of the great weapons of Satan through the centuries to disrupt and divide the church on the question of truth. So beware, there are some who are trying to lead you astray. Hold on to the truth. And as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as this anointing, this, this work of the Holy Spirit, I, I think is, is, is at least implied here, that, that, that teaches you about all things. And as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Again, back to the illustration of the vine and the branches. John 15. If anyone remains in me, I remain in him. The same idea, the same concept of vital and real organic connection to him. And one of the ways we do it is simply by shutting down false teaching. I've said many times in my years here, if you look at what Paul writes about, if you see the amount of things that he's concerned about and add them up and total them up, he says relatively little about sexual impurity. He obviously is against it. He obviously teaches that it's wrong and destructive. But he says relatively little about that. He says relatively little about murder, incest, any number of things. But he says a whole lot about the truth. And spends much of his time, I would say most of his time, seeking to defeat truth. And he's not writing to the Roman Empire. He's not writing to the Greeks as a culture. He's writing to the churches at Ephesus and Thessalonica and Corinth. It was a real concern of his, as it evidently is here now. And we will read more of this later in the book. The truth matters. The gospel is to be preserved, to be held on to. Paul says to Timothy, guard the gospel. Hang on to that deposit which has been given to you. Don't change it or, or, or amend it. In other words, to quote the old song, give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. That sounds a little antiquated. Young people might say maybe even a little cheesy. But it's still the truth. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It was good for the prophet Daniel. It's good enough for me. 
It was good for Jesus, it's good enough for me. It was good for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Give me that old time, that's what he's saying. Hold on to the truth. Do not distort it. And do not allow it to be of secondary importance or open to amendment. Now the application, of course, is very personal. Most of us don't find ourselves in a situation where we are opposing theological heterodoxy. We find it in our, in our own hearts that we don't believe the basic gospel message. We want to elevate ourselves and forget that we are fundamentally flawed. When things are going well, we, we deny the gospel by saying, look at me, look at me. And when things are going poorly, we feel like the world is crushing us, that God is crushing us, that he has forsaken us and he will no longer sustain us. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that he who began a good work in you will carry to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And when you are lifted up, he will knock you down. When you are downcast, he will lift you up. He will work in and through you. Trust him. And trust his word. And don't catch, and catch yourself when you find yourself wanting to amend it. And saying, well, that's for other people. Just this once, I'll do as I want to do. That's dangerous. And we have God's word on it. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. Let us pray. Lord, we would be reminded this morning that the heart is a wandering and self-seeking thing. We want to believe what we find convenient. We want to doubt and fear when we should trust. We want to be puffed up and proud when we should be cast down. We want to deny that he's alive by our actions and our thoughts and our hearts when he surely is. Forgive us, we pray, and enable us to cling to the truth within the church, to not be a part of anything that is anti-Christ, to love the gospel and to learn it again and again and again and make it new and fresh in our lives. And to be able to say, O Lord, thy word is truth. May you be praised in Jesus' name. Amen.